Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I'm here with my friends again. Hello, hello. Hi, everybody. So <laughs> we're going to focus in this episode a little bit on delirium and why nothing you do matters. Yep. So nothing we do matters. You know, let's get a little crazy for delirium. I don't know about you guys, but I think probably the worst phone call to get on night is 3 o'clock in the morning saying the patient's getting out of bed, pulling out our IVs, mm-hmm. pulling out the Foley, and give me something to help. And you're like, what? The QTC is prolonged, and they're on amiodarone. Right. There's so many things. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to give. So... It's also never who you expect. (laughs) You come back in the morning and you're like, Sally? No way. She's so quiet. 97-year-old quiet lady. Always the sweet ones. Yeah. Or in um, Scrubs, the tackling Alzheimer's patient. Do you remember that one? Like, who am I? Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting what can happen overnight and Mm -hmm. how people change with delirium. So I guess we should need to define delirium really quick before we can really talk about it. So delirium is an acute change in cognition characterized by inattention, typically associated with disorganized thinking and or alteration in consciousness. About 25% of hospitalized patients actually exhibit delirium. So you can see the impact this has on Mm -hmm. healthcare. And a lot of the times providers don't really know how to treat it. So why... I'm guessing that's usually elderly or with comorbidities on other sedatives. Mm -hmm. It's usually your elderly population, your post-operative patients, things like that. That's, That's your predominant... And a history history of dementia or other cognitive impairment can really predispose you as well. Exactly. So why do we think antipsychotics help? Because our go-to is Haldol, Zyprexa. Those are usually, you know, nurses have them in their belt ready to go. So uh, in 2005, they did a small trial of haloperidol prophylaxis in hip fracture patients. And they found that haloperidol reduced the overall severity and duration of the delirium which is interesting, but I'll get into why that's actually false. Mm. In 2007, they did another systematic review and include that antipsychotics may reduce severity and dura- uh, duration of delirium episodes and shortened length of stay in hip surgery. Uh, there was a study showed that 10 to 30% of patients receive antipsychotics at some point during their hospitalization stay, uh, and there's a lot of variability in which one they get because there's not really a unified decision by uh, physicians. Dollar or one day exactly. Or, so which or, one do we use? Because there's no official guidelines. So. Exactly. Exactly. So why are they actually not helpful? So going back to that 2005 hip fracture delirium prophylaxis trial, found there was actually no difference in the incidence of delirium in patients on postoperative day one. Hmm. So, so whether, the, whether they got it, get it or not, there was no difference. So sometimes hips do lie. Yeah. The, <laughs> don't tell Shakira. You know. <laughs> um, and then that 2010 study was underpowered. So mm-hmm. it, that's why you have to really look into these studies and see how it was actually done. Uh, there was no significant difference in severity of delirium between treatment and non-treatment. So whether they got it or not, they still had, exhibited delirium. Um, so in 2016, a systematic review in the Journal of American Geriatric Society included both of the above studies and 17 other studies, and they showed that antipsychotics did not change the length of delirium or length of stay. Mm-hmm. So regardless of not they got medication, it did not overall change the duration of stay. So, um, so what should we do instead for patients and who are really indicated? For me, I personally give antipsychotic to, antipsychotic to patients. First of all, I always go evaluate them when I get that phone call sure. overnight. I have a lower threshold to evaluate them first if I can audibly hear them screaming through the phone <laughs> in the background. Sure. I'm like, okay, I'll give you a little something to help. Uh, but who should really be getting these are those who have severe psychotic symptoms that uh, pose a harm to themselves mm-hmm. or others. And that's typically where we do it. It shouldn't be that little lady that's hallucinating the bed 
um, or maybe trying to pull out their line, it should really be those that are at a high fall risk, trying to get out of bed, trying to move, are agitated, mm-hmm. or aggressive, or trying to punch patients, or punch, punch your nursing staff. That's really who you should do. So what are other other things that so we should... So you're NPO patients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, pending surgery. Yeah, pending surgery. Um, so first of all, we need to identify an underlying cause for the delirium. Mm-hmm. See if there is one, right? Correct any pain they may have. Pain is one of the most common causes of delirium in the elderly, so always trying to give them some pain medications, which may confuse providers because opiates can induce confusion right. in the elderly. But if they have pain, that might be why they're so delirious. Uh, correct their electrolytes. Make sure there's no signs of ischemia, infection, alcohol withdrawal, dehydration. Obviously, not every single patient has all these at the same time. It has mm-hmm. to be patient-specific, but really focusing on an underlying cause. Uh, obviously, we know that non-pharmacological methods to prevent delirium is kind of our go-to. So things to focus on should be orientation, hydrating the patient, mobility, sensory aids, and environment conductive to sleep. So if you guys listened to our previous episodes, mm-hmm. overnight vitals. vitals. They, something that we do for no reason. Mm-hmm. If your patient's at high risk of developing delirium, like your elderly dementia patient or your post-operative patient, and they're a stable post-operative patient, maybe do a communication order to eliminate the mm-hmm. vitals overnight. Other things that they can do, a lot of problems, they pull their IVs out. So actually what they do is they wrap the entire arm and have the tubing come out behind the shoulder. Oh, so that way they can't reach it. And then there's actually something called an activity vest that you can put on a patient that has just a bunch of things that they can grab and try to pull off them, but doesn't do anything. So it's like just a like, fidget spinner. It's like a fidget spinner. Or I was going to say, it sounds like a baby toy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Here's, so something, here, that, something shiny. Yeah, it's like... A little rattle in front of them. Exactly. I think that makes sense and it's okay. not invasive and mm-hmm. I think it's the least, you know, the most we can do for a patient without actually right. doing much for them. Um, in regards to medications that they give, there's no actually recommendation on your first-line medication to give people. Uh, typically, we go for the Haldol or the Zyprexa. Zyprexa is a little bit more QTC sparing, so that's why we usually go for that. But the most Im- important thing is the Geriatric Society recommends the minimal effective dose for mm-hmm. the most effective response. So always start low. You always see these memes on Instagram how doctors order 0.25 Ativan for your patient and mm-hmm. it's not going to touch them. Right. It's because there's a, there's a logic behind that. You don't want to give them one of Ativan. Yeah, they're scared. They're scared. <laughs> they're scared. I mean, how many times has a patient gotten uh-huh. zonked overnight right. and then they sleep all day and then they're there for an extra three days and it happens all the time. So overall, this make sure you're looking for conservative therapy for your patients, reorient Orientation really helps, opening the blinds, telling the date, uh, put the IV behind their shoulder and give them a nice vest and hopefully you won't be reserved yeah. to antipsychotics. And if you do have to use antipsychotics, it's really used for those that are harmed to themselves and for others. I think it, you made a couple of good points like the, the pulling IVs. I mean, they're confused or they don't know where they are. There's a piece of plastic coming out of their arm. Like, I get it, you know, why they would do that. Like, are they actually harming themselves? Are they actually harming someone? So you're correct. Maybe that's more of a... I see that a lot as an excuse to give the antipsychotic, but maybe that's more of like, all right, let's reorient, let's figure out why this is why this is happening. I, I know the article doesn't mention restraints, but that's a similar. You put this person in restraints, you might just make them Worse. a little more delirious. Yeah. So I, I think the, the key take home to me from this is, what is the underlying cause for all this? Is it dehydration? Is there some occult infection? Are they hyponatremic? Is there something else going on that's contributing? Did I... You know, did someone order Benadryl yesterday for itching and now they're, you know, confused? So definitely look at some underlying cause and try to address that before you toss a Haldol-sized Band-Aid at it. And also try to eliminate, you know, if they're pulling IVs, do they need all, you know, do they need multiple IVs? Do they need a fully catheter? Do they need... 
all this stuff oh, minimize minimize whatever you can basically yeah. um and then i think the other issue that you know we didn't really talk about is this a, this is really distressful for families um seeing your your loved one like this is is very stressful and i think it's important to talk to families and kind of explain what's going on and i like to use the analogy of you know you might be in in the hospital because your your kidneys are failing or because your heart is failing um and just kind of talking about how the brain can also have have disease and can have mm-hmm. failure while it's in, while you're in the hospital and i kind of draw, draw the connection that way and say you know this is something that we're working to get through and yeah, it's just like a, a cute brain insufficiency. Just like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think that makes it sound better with all the we throw right. around terminology and yeah. it's, it's pre-renal though. Yeah. Yeah. It's pre-brain. <laughs> pre-brain. Yeah. Pre-brain. Um, and then definitely also always assessing the patient. Yeah. You know, you have to trust but verify by the nurse. You mm-hmm. know, they call you the patient's aware as to doing stuff out. Go take go look at them because there's been numerous times on nights where I go see the patient and they're just resting there calmly sleeping. And obviously they may have been delirious at that point in time, right. but now they're not. If I didn't go see the patient, I would have even more sedative medication when they didn't actually need it at that right. point in time. Yeah. And I think sitters are a great thing too. I know it's resource heavy, but trying to put somebody there who can talk to the patient and redirect them and yeah. instead of having to do meds or restraints is, is a huge, huge yeah. benefit. So this uh, dovetails nicely into an article I wanted to review, uh, the use of Haldol in the ICU. So I did not know this was a thing. But uh, apparently, Haldol and uh, Giodon are uh, heavily used in the ICU as well. So the Mind USA trial was done, I believe, a couple of years ago. Um, the purpose of the study was to look at the use of uh, antipsychotics uh, in uh, the use for prevention and treatment of ICU delirium. And so basically, they took patients who had respiratory failure and delirium. Uh, and they use the CAM ICU scoring tool, which you guys know more about than I do. I don't think that was a thing when I was a resident. It has to be documented in our note every, every single day. day. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know much about the score, but I know <laughs> that you guys documented in all of your notes. Yes. Yes. Um, so someone has drilled this into your brains. Um, but they basically took patients, again, respiratory failure, delirium, uh, documented CAM ICU scores. Um, they basically um, randomized patients. Half of them were going to receive... Uh, antipsychotics and half of them were not going to receive antipsychotics and they're going to kind of look at the end result, um, basically primary endpoints looking at how many days alive without coma or delirium and the secondary endpoint was survival. Um, and again they used patients who were both, and I thought this was interesting too, hyperactive delirium was about 11% of patients and hypoactive delirium was the other 89% of patients. I mean, I typically use antipsychotics for hyperactive, right? So I, I would have not really thought in the hypoactive kind of sedated patient the use of Haldol. Um, so that's what this study is kind of trying to address. And um, well, let's just say spoiler alert, it does nothing for you. Um, so they basically used reasonable doses, you know, five milligrams of Haldol, for example, and they went up on the dose if they needed to, to get the proper kind of sedation that they needed. Um, But they pretty much found that um, at the end of the study, uh, the two groups, whether they got antipsychotics or not, they were equally, you know, delirium and equal amounts of like, uh, you know, comatose days and sedated days. So the use, basically this was similar to prior trials. If you want to read the HOPE ICU or the MIND trial, those all looked at 
similar questions, but they were smaller studies. So this was a much larger study. Um, and again, they kind of gave some rationale at the end in the discussion section, section as to maybe why uh, antipsychotics don't work. Um, and they kind of, the, the key point they make is that ICU delirium is not caused by one thing. It's yep. caused by, I don't know, nine things. They're, they have hypoxia, infection, uh, they're on sedatives, they're on benzos, they're on propofol, you name it. They, there's like a million reasons for these patients to have delirium. I think it's ex ex incredibly common. Um, I think the study said at baseline, like half of all ICU patients will have delirium. So similar to Mike's article, you really tossing Haldol or uh, Geodon at these patients, not really gonna fix their delirium. You have to go back and think about, am I using too much sedative? Can I back off and use more Presidex? Can I minimize certain medications? Am I treating this infection? What's their O2 saturation? There's a lot of other factors to look at, um, not just controlling like the dopaminergic you know, component of it, if you will. So yeah. I thought it was an interesting st study, not that I really toss a lot of uh, antipsychotics in my ICU patients, but it would have been nice if it worked. It'd be great if we can, anything we, we can do to make these patients less confused and you know, work with us would be great, but this, I think this there's, isn't a... they've been looking a lot into kind of post ICU syndrome now, and that's a huge, huge field of research and basically finding that it's very difficult to, to mitigate any of these effects because people come out of the ICU with PTSD. They come mm. out of the ICU, you know, not only physically disabled, but mentally disabled. Um, and, you know, we used to think early PT was the goal and people would be walking around while on the ventilator, but more, there was actually a more recent study that showed maybe that's not so beneficial. So I think it's one of those fields where nobody knows what to do yet. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of long-term outcomes from, from people being delirious and getting PTSD and the ICU is just not a great place to be. And we're trying to figure out how to make it tolerable or make mm -hmm. it a little bit better. Yeah. All right. So. If we talk more about this, I think we'll all get delirious. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. thanks for tuning in everyone.